the thing that bugged the living shit out of me was these expected outcomes that were like 2.1%. And then we do 2.2%. And it was a celebratory environment when the reality is when you talk about measurement in games, you cannot be remotely that precise. That is nonsense. Hello, and welcome to Creators at Work. I'm Katie Kuffel, one of the makers behind this show, and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grit's founder and CEO. On today's episode, we're going back to the early days of Zynga when our guest, as well as Brett's, career started in mobile product management. We're talking with Andrew Ice, who began as a PM back in 2012, but is currently the senior VP of product and game design at Zynga. During his time there, Andrew has seen Zynga's approach to product management evolve into a well-oiled machine that marries data with in-depth critical analysis in order to bring engaging, profitable, and innovative features and events to their players. The path to this success, however, wasn't without its twists and turns, so keep listening to learn what makes a great PM, how to estimate a feature, ways to collaborate with design, and why Brett wanted to punch his boss in the face. Andrew, let's start out by going back back in the day, back to the start of your product management career at Zynga specifically, which interestingly enough overlaps with my start of the product management career in mobile gaming. I started in 2011. What year did you start in and what game did you get thrown into? I So I started in 2012. I came into it a little bit after you. Actually, originally almost joined around the same time as you. I was working with Eddie LeBreton, who was a person I, I went to business school with, and ultimately chose not to because I didn't think I was a gamer. And about a year later, decided it was a good choice. Had another friend at that point that was also at Zynga. I started on Zynga Bingo, which many people will not remember because it didn't exist for that much longer than my time on it. <laughs> but it was uh, one of the first non-poker social casino games that Zynga had made. Um, and it was based out of Austin, which is where I am. And I've been in Austin the whole time. So I was never at headquarters. So Eddie was... My manager for a long time at Zynga. I had forgotten that connection, and uh, you you were in Austin the entire time. Who was the manager of that team? Was that uh, Shane? Yes. Funny story. When I interviewed the second time at Zynga, there was a lot of good people in in Austin. I mean, generally, what I would say that, that sort of blew me away. The overall statement is just the quality people. Just immediately was just amazing, and something I hadn't really been around in that volume. I interviewed with five people in Austin, three of which told me they were running the place. Shane was one of them, uh, Eric Bethke and Jeremy Strauser. So it was a funny introduction to to Zynga. But yeah, Shane was running Zynga Bingo specifically at that point. And it was in, it wasn't launched yet or was it launched? It was launched. It had come out maybe two, three months before that. Not a long time. So did you go through the PM camp as well? Did you fly into SF and do that? Or were you just straight into Austin? Straight into Austin. All of my first several years, I would say, is a little bit unique and not in the mold (laughs) generally. So I have always traveled fairly frequently to San Francisco. So actually, for some people that I haven't worked super closely, they've been very surprised to hear that I've always been based out of the Austin um, studio. I was just surprised of that. Yes, I thought you were in San Francisco for some period of time. Been there a lot, um, fairly visible at this point. But I started no boot camp of any kind. Um, I was just thrown into the mix immediately, which was definitely trial by fire. And I made quite a few mistakes very early on, but I had good, you know, mentors and buddies and 
Shane, obviously, in particular, who's a good friend of mine still today, Michael Google, uh, Nir Leibovich. There's a bunch of folks you know, early on that really helped me a ton. Well, I can attest going through the PM bootcamp that it wasn't that extensive. I think it was a couple <laughs> days, maybe. So mm-hmm. it's not like you were missing months of prep and all that. Yeah. I actually think it was part of Zynga's DNA and probably still is today that they threw you into the mix immediately. 100%. I was doing, I was doing yeah. the daily, I, what was it when you went through all the daily metrics? What was that meeting called? The, da- daily numbers. Yeah, some, yeah. Daily numbers. Thank you. Yeah. I, daily numbers on day one. I mm-hmm. led that meeting on day one. Was mm-hmm. that your experience as well? I went to the daily numbers at, on day one, which was literally the first meeting before I even met with HR. Um, and I led the meeting on day two. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, that- which I was not ready to do, but yes. And and you think, and that's still something that's part of Zynga today? Not quite to that extent. Like there is more process involved in sort of bringing people in, which is a good thing. But absolutely, the expectation is to throw people into the deep end to some extent, not without support, but you know, we're hiring really talented people. Like I don't want to baby them. Um, so my expectation and what I talk to basically every new PM on our teams about when they start is look, you're an ambitious person. You're smart. There's a great reason why we hired you. You're definitely going to be a person, especially if they're younger, who's looking at how do I go up to the right? And the reality is that no career progression works that way at all. It's an incredibly noisy line. My analogy is actually, ironically, my background here in the office, which is like, if you've ever learned a musical instrument, what you do is you very frustratingly learn, say, chords, and you can't do anything for months. And then all of a sudden, you can put all those chords together and you can play, you know, 100 pop songs tomorrow. That's kind of the way my experience with sort of product management works is that you are generally kind of flailing around as you learn all this new stuff. And then all of a sudden, you can apply that and make good decisions, make good things. And you sort of hit this new plateau and then you learn something new. But it's really noisy and it's very easy to get discouraged early on in those times if you don't know that for zero, literally zero people, is it just a straight line up and to the right? And so throwing people into the deep end is part of that. That's actually something that I have kept or taken from Zynga and applied to my company, Liquid and Grid. I mean, we throw people right into the mix on day one. And then their training is basically getting edited Right or <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> and I yep. just tell them over time, the amount of comments you're going to receive from me is going to decline. It's going to go down, or you're not a good fit. <laughs> right. I mean, if that doesn't go down, then this isn't working out. But you're going to hear from me a lot for the first yep. three, four, five, eight weeks, and then eventually you're going to stop hearing from me. Yeah, some of those early stuff like daily numbers, weekly, the the daily report. When I was on call for the daily report, and all those things, I still a little bit of anxiety boils up when I think about having to know what was going on with some random metric on bookmarks or yep. whatever else it was and everything like that and presenting it to Michael Kane and Dustin mm-hmm. Wicked and all these legendary guys kind of not knowing what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. That happened. I mean, I would say at this point, the mechanics of that are different. Like daily reports disappeared a long time ago. That was one of the things when I started never having worked in games, but having some pretty useful and reasonable work experience before coming to Zynga. I thought the daily reports were crazy. I, 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 it was like an incredible amount of work. The signal to noise ratio was very low. Like it was not a lot of actually useful information. And there was a lot of pressure to sort of come up with explanations of which many times you didn't know. As soon as I got into a position of making decisions like that, those went away 
very rapidly. And we just moved to weekly reports, which are a much better summary of sort of overall trends of things where they're going. But yeah, it was very stressful. Like <laughs> I remember that was one of my very first stressful moments and sending out an error, you know? Oh, and goodness. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Just so you know, you basically were on call. So you'd rotate through the PMs and each PM would get a week. And then every day, they had to send out a summary of the key metrics that were going on in the game. And if anything was down a certain amount, whatever it was, then there have to be a sentence summary of that thing. And that email was sent to basically the entire executive team, all the way up to Pincus, which was the CEO. And then all these aliases, which were like all execs, revenue PMs, <laughs> senior PMs, all product managers, just a massive email, right? And you click send on it. And I, so my trick was I literally would email myself the email over and over again and reread the received <laughs> email yeah. until I was for sure that it was correct. And even then, oh my goodness, when I sent out an error and Michael Kane would respond within five seconds, you, you got this wrong or whatever. It was just like, oh, and then God forbid you had to email out a correction. Uh, it was, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It was yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Well, good for you for correcting that. There's two things that come to mind about that, mm-hmm. though. One way that I described Zynga during that time period was that it was like Never Never Land, where there was a few adults somewhere, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the team was just kind of kids running around doing stuff that, if it was positive in terms of these metrics, the adults didn't care if mm-hmm. it was negative. And Katie, just so that you know, if you sent out those emails and there was a negative and you didn't explain it right, you could get a response from someone all the way up the chain asking a question as to why it was that way. So it was something that was read. Was that your feeling about those days? That was sort of how it was managed was through numbers and everything else was a little hands off? Generally, yes. I mean, incredibly numbers focused in some ways. And this is one of the things I actually I think would be good to talk about maybe here or later, but like I found it to be incredibly numbers oriented, but not actually that analytical in some ways. Um, so it's mm. just like a lot of math. <laughs> lot of math, but it was leading us into places where it was, it felt to me at times like, do you guys watch The Office? Oh yeah. Yes, yes, okay. Yes. So there's an episode of The Office where Michael is driving and a Garmin tells him to drive into the lake. And so he drives into the lake. That to me is how oftentimes decisions got made during that time frame because we'd gotten ourselves into this place where only numbers could make decisions, which is not a good place to be really. If you take just one step back, You need to use really rigorous analysis, which Zynga totally pioneered for games. I mean, it was like an amazing innovation. But by the time I got there, and it probably had already started by the time you'd gotten there, it had jumped the shark a little bit to become the only tool as opposed to a really good tool. So there was some weird stuff. And I mean, this was, I started at a time when Zynga was starting to go through a tougher time period. And I think it was part of it because it was just so numbers oriented. Even if like you took one step back and were like, that make a lot of sense. Does that, <laughs> does that decision make a lot of sense? It doesn't seem like a great one. So that's been a big change for us. I'd say more methodically over the last eight plus years is like way more analytically rigorous. I would say, but not as the only tool to make decisions. I would agree with that. And I would add that what I used to say was, and again, referencing what something we used to do was when we did the roadmap slide and then Katie, there was another document we would send out each month that was basically a product review document. And on that, it would list all the features that we were going to be releasing. There would be a column for the expected revenue impact, which we will go into detail because it really is sort of Mm -hmm. a pioneering part of 
of mobile gaming and I think a key ingredient to Zynga. But back to the, the roadmap slide is you would have a revenue column and a cost column. And the revenue column was the expected impact and the cost column was the dev time, basically five days of dev or et cetera. That represented how expensive it was going to be. And what I felt like was missing was the risk column because the when you're looking thinking about expected value, you need to have a likelihood of succeeding column. And by not having it, all the PMs were designing towards a 90 plus percent basically confidence level. So very little Mm -hmm. risk because later on you'd have to present how accurate you were to it. Now, a portfolio that is extremely accurate is not an optimized portfolio. It's like a financial portfolio that's all bonds, right? By not having that column, we couldn't separate from the analytics. If we had a column that said, this is an extremely risky feature, we are not sure how it's going to do, it's got a 10% likelihood to be successful, then we could, I think, separate from the analytics. But because we didn't have that column, it was all, well, you said 2% and it was only 1.5%, or you said it was going to be 2% and whatever. And mm-hmm. it it hampered innovation. Similar, I think, to your point is it it was too, too focused on those numbers and not enough on, okay, well, we don't really know how this is going to do. This is just a wild idea and we're going to innovate on it and see how it does. And it failed, but we thought it might fail. We've gone in a little bit of a different direction, but I'm smiling because I couldn't agree more. This was another one of the things that went as I sort of onboarded into Zynga. And again, to be clear, like I did not know what I was doing when I started, but it's like, uh, so it was a learning a ton on the job, but it was very strange to me to see a roadmap being sorted by column F as with this ROI at the top, because the inputs were so bad, like (laughs) the inputs were not accurate. And so that's an amazing way to do it. If your inputs are really solid. And as you said, there's a risk assessment vector. But as it was, it definitely incentivized you to do lots of small, because you had to have a comp to do the to do the EO that was effective. And so it just it put you in sort of a weird spot to think about prioritization. We do it very differently today. Very, very differently. I was about um, to ask. My answer might surprise you. On my teams, expected outcomes are not a thing that we really do. I have personally found, and then speaking for myself, but I have personally found that to be a major endeavor that is a waste of time. High level, absolutely, PMs need to understand the funnels that they are looking at. That is an incredibly important part of the rigor that comes with understanding where you have leverage and where you don't in a product. But ultimately, we judge success based on hurdle rates. So uh, another financial aspect, but we're looking at hurdle rates and not whether you were close to your estimate or not. So as opposed yeah. to saying, we said it was going to be 2% and it's and it was 3%. And so, yeah, we did a good job. When you take one step and you're like, you realize that 3% didn't matter. We use hurdle rates. I'm not going to say what they are on here, but we okay. establish a number that is the expectation for, say, a bold beat feature. So any bold beat needs to clear this hurdle rate. And it's almost always going to be judged on long-term ARPU. So real LTV impact. And that's your success criteria because that ultimately is something that made a difference to the business. Because if you take one step back, the thing that bugged the living shit out of me was these expected outcomes that were like 2.1%. And then we do 2.2%. And it was a celebratory environment when the reality is when you talk about measurement in games, you cannot be remotely that precise. That is nonsense. Because of the way that games work, this is not like testing a blue button on a Google homepage. We've got 
totally non-normal distributions of players, very different behavior. So ultimately, this is where I talk about like sort of the rigor versus just math. Ultimately, we need to understand that there are noise ranges here and we're probably less precise in terms of measurement than we would ideally want. And that means that we need to take a, a higher level view on this stuff. And we need to be very precise on where we think we have leverage and opportunities. But debating on whether this has the upside of 2% or 3% is like a fool's errand. We need to believe in it. And if we do, let's go for it. So that's been a big change for our teams uh, over the last you know, four or five years. That's made a big difference for us in being able to take more risks too. That, that's really interesting. So the hurdle rate is basically a minimum number that you want to get over. Is that... Yeah. And it's got a it... lower threshold for systems than it does like for, say, events. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, though, and I, you did say this, that the concept of funnels is powerful. In oh, that super. So important. Understanding. Yeah. And again, for those, uh, if Katie, for you, if you're not familiar, there may be some listeners out there, but most people in mobile gaming kind of understand funnels is that you basically go in Excel and you're looking at top line BAU, people who engage in the feature, people who make a transaction, and then you get down to this number and then you compare that to the current numbers and you say, okay, it's going to give us a 5% lift. And this was really something that I think Pincus, I don't know if that's Correct, but I feel like he really pioneered in in Zynga early day DNA. And the interesting thing about my interactions with Pincus around the funnel and then how it was implemented for the PM was that Pincus was always thinking about, I felt like a 2x, 50% oh, idea. totally, 100%, yes. Yeah, Every yeah, yeah. meeting with yeah. him was like, I mean, I can remember a meeting with him where he's just telling us, why aren't we in every Starbucks and yeah. my bosses are like, what? How are we going to get into Starbucks? And he's like, I don't know, but figure it out. It's going to be amazing if we are, you know? And and then he would go through a funnel exercise. But then somehow the product managers has built these funnels, like you said, on these minutiae of features where it'd mm-hmm. be like 0.5% increase in DAU. And mm-hmm. we're going to invest in that. And that was the roadmap. So I don't know how that happened, how there was that sort of disconnect between the product manager and what I felt like Pincus used it for. I don't really know either, but I my experience is exactly the same. Mark wanted teams to think really big, no matter the size of the game. And like you were on poker, I'm on bingo to start. Like those are, the scale of those two games is dramatically different. And it was the same idea. I mean, his feedback was always, still is today, think really big. But yeah, the, the process that we sort of slipped into didn't reinforce that. And I think we're back to just a much better place on that front. You know, it's taken a lot of people's time, not just mine, obviously, like lots of people have worked on this over time. But yeah, he, he he's always pushed teams to think really, really big, big ideas. And one thing that he pushed that I think it sounds like you capitalized on was that I was in a meeting with him and he was, it was a product management meeting and there was all the product managers there and he gave a talk and someone raised their hand and made a complaint. He turned to them and said, there's no red tape here. Why haven't <laughs> you fixed it? Yeah, I'm not giving you red tape. No one's holding you back. If you don't like that, go fix it. And it sounds like you did that with the funnels and the roadmap slides and the daily emails was if I was working there, I would thank you profusely because those seriously were on. I mean, you didn't do anything all week when you were on call, except for those, those things. But I love that mentality of Pincus and of Zynga where you could fix anything if you wanted to. And there wasn't red tape around it when I was there. And it sounds like it, it still is today. I think that's, that's true. I would say there is generally more process here today than there was before, which is 
becomes necessary. So I don't want to, it's not, that is absolutely right. When we started Zynga, there was no red tape. There's a flip side to that, just no process <laughs> <laughs> or very limited process. I think we've struck a pretty good balance at this point. It's something though, that is a perpetual struggle between process and just being able to fix something tomorrow. And it's perpetual give and take, I would say. It was super empowering, no doubt. It was super empowering specifically for PMs, though, I would say. I don't know if it was that empowering for everybody. And that's one of the things that sort of our teams have tried to, to change over time is product is an incredibly important role still today. That is no, that is not different. But there's lots of other disciplines that are incredibly critical to the game development process, too. We want to make sure that they feel significant degrees of empowerment to fix things, too. And it was different for each team, but at Zynga, we wrote detailed documents as specs and we would do it in Google Docs. You would then have the dev review, the lead PM review, and then and then you'd have the, the spec review where you presented all the PMs and they would thrash it in a, a good way. But I would legit meditate before some of those meetings and prepare myself. <laughs> Eventually, we had a product council, which was, I had to seriously prep a whole day for that and be calm <laughs> before those. And Nico, who I'm going to have on next week, I'll bring up the story. We'll tell the story where he thought I was going to jump over the table and punch him in the face on one of the features that we were talking about. So <laughs> i give you an idea of how these meetings uh, happen sometimes. Talk to me about the experience then and, and how have you evolved that, the product spec review or spec process? So my experience is Pretty similar to yours back then. You know, it was a rigorous gauntlet to go through to present even a relatively small idea, I would say. One of the things that was very true, I think, across basically every team at Zynga was incredibly direct communication. If you came in from the outside, you probably found it combative, but it was very, very direct. And so, you you know, didn't matter how new you were, you were going to get told that your idea sucked pretty quickly. <laughs> we have, at least on our teams, kept a very direct communication style. I wouldn't say it's nearly that severe, though, at this point. Every one of our teams has a different spec review process, but it absolutely is going through a variety of reviews, pretty tough feedback sessions. Um, and that's one of the things, if you talk about like sort of empowerment with teams. So I oversee a variety of sort of product and game design teams on at Zynga, Every one of those teams has a little bit of a different process. It's up to them how they get it. Ultimately, they need to come out with good ideas that are rigorous and you know well-documented. How they get there is kind of up to them, but it requires tough feedback in some form. And a lot of those teams continue to sort of iterate on that process. It's sort of a perpetual, never-done kind of thing on how, how do you make that process better and more efficient. Yeah, we used to joke that we were going to create T-shirts that I survived the dev review <laughs> T-shirt. You, you, you got one every time you made it through the gauntlet. But on the flip side, when I left Zynga, I actually felt badly for the product managers outside of Zynga because I was thinking, geez, you aren't getting the type of rigor and feedback and inputs that I was when I was at Zynga because we had nine or 11 PMs or something like that on Zynga Poker, not to mention directors and GMs on those meetings. Right. So Katie, you basically sent out your document before the meeting and then everyone read it and then you went and presented it. And it was just like Andrew said, I mean, there was no holding back. I mean, there's there was no nothing about emotions or feelings or Oreo comments where it's a positive, negative, positive. It was just direct at you. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, because when I left Zynga, this was actually 
really difficult for me because I had been a PM who adopted that system. I came from sports, so it was pretty comfortable for me to jump into that. Then product managers at Zynga at the time, like you mentioned, were what I call the A-class citizens. I mean, they got to (laughs) basically do what they wanted and push things through uh, to other departments. And when I left, boy, did I struggle to... get the sort of humanistic side of product management, right? Where you didn't have the numbers to drive things through. You had to convince teams to do things based on what I felt like were more humanistic reasons. And you had to get buy-in and all these things I just didn't do at Zynga. And I don't know if you felt the same way or it's changed or or, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your perspective (laughs) on that stuff. Well, I felt felt the same way. And also, I mean, it has changed to some degree. Now I will say product management, I think is like the least descriptive job term ever because it just varies so much from industry to industry even from team to team i mean like product management at zynga varies from team to team in some in some regards but the thing that i you know i I get tons of questions either through recruiting or sort of career development for pms like what does it take to be a good pm and i have a pretty canned well it's it's a thought through answer but it's canned at this point and you know there's three big things that you got to be able to do to, to be a good pm you have to be very analytically rigorous and have like a lot of analytical horsepower but you will top out because ultimately in your career as you evolve as a product manager product lead etc you are taking less and less data to make better and better decisions if you it requires you to do an incredibly rigorous analysis every single time to make a decision you just won't have the decision throughput to make it work. Second part is you have to have good design skills. You have to be creative. It makes it such a fun job, but it also makes it hard to recruit for because you got to be good left and right brain activity on both of these things. Because ultimately, product is sort of a cross-business analytics design type of job in games. And then the last one, to your point, is we call it give-a-shit quotient you can call it being able to work with others, whatever you want to call it. But there have been plenty of people, whether it's Zynga or otherwise, who were super smart, really creative, and they were assholes. And that doesn't work because you are working with a team <laughs> to make things happen. And yes, product still at Zynga has a lot of decision-making power. And we can ram things through if the power there exists. It's not a real good way to do stuff though if that's all you're doing the soft skills of the job are important in being able to work with others and care (laughs) and that's it's just a super critical component to it in general i have a similar can response i'd add one additional thing which is the ability to be disciplined to do deep thought work and Mm -hmm. i often say you have to carve out this time to do the spec writing the spreadsheets the estimates all that stuff that I call deep thought work, because what I find with some of the PMs who do have those three, they can top out with their output because they are constantly responding to Slack, responding to email, <laughs> and they're just reacting to what's going on in their team. And they're a little bit more, as I would define, a project manager than a product manager because they're not getting the spec output and the feature output of someone else on their team. And my little trick was I would show up at Zynga at seven in the morning and I would go into a little office that was had nothing in it. It was one of just those office rooms. I'd turn off the lights so no one knew I was in there. And I would work for the first three hours of the day by myself with no email on specs analysis. And then the first scrum was at 10. So at 9.55, I would walk out of that room 
and then I would go to my first scrum. That was one of my sort of secret sauces for getting more output done than PMs who showed up at nine, started answering emails, got into scrum, and then the day just blew up in their face with everything that was going to hit them, and they never got the spec output done. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I am also a morning person, and so that was a big part of what I did early on. It was also, as an anecdote, that was a hard adjustment for me actually coming to Zynga was how late the culture was. And that's not Zynga, that's games. But I had worked mostly in companies where most people were at the office or online working by eight at the latest. Having the day start at 10 or 1030 <laughs> felt crazy to me. The The evolution of that was uh, it's an opportunity. You can get a ton done in the morning before everybody gets there, which was great. And that's exactly what I, I did too. And the other thing that was tied into all of this, because all of these things are connected, was that there was an incentive structure at that time. It made it so that as an individual, it made sense to you to steamroll your ideas through because if you were right you could get these massive bonuses this again was back in the day katie just so you know you could get 50 percent, 100 percent bonuses at zynga if you were a like above average you would get 20 percent. i mean and if you were in the top it, it depended on your team you get 50 and 100 percent it was quarterly and your boss on one day of the quarter it was a couple weeks after the quarter ended would basically get this pamphlet and it would have sheets of paper in it and they would call you in like, hey, Andrew, can I talk to you? And you'd walk into a little room and they'd hand you this piece of paper. And the, the very all the bosses, it wasn't emotional at all. The bosses didn't, you know, it wasn't flowery. So it was like, here, thank you. Congratulations. You know, you had a good quarter and you'd read it and it would be, you leveled up, you got... 20,000 shares of ZSUs, which were strike prices zero, and you got a 50% bonus for that quarter. Or you get a level up, I mean, whatever you would get. And that was a really critical component of it all because when you were an individual on a team, you obviously understood that if you steamrolled your lead dev or you steamrolled your lead designer, that that was going to get some backlash onto you, right? Or if you literally disagreed. I mean, if when we get Eddie on here, I will tell you stories of me literally disagreeing with Eddie straight up. Who is my boss on ideas and being like, no, I'm going to do this anyways, Eddie, you know, and him being like, I don't want you to do this. I'm like, I'm going to do it anyways. Because in my mind at the end of the quarter, I could get a 50% bonus if that feature hit. And so you were kind of willing to burn those bridges with the understanding that you could get a payday at the mm. end. I think that was a really interesting and important component to this whole system that wasn't in other companies when I left and made it so there wasn't really a reason to innovate because you realize when you innovate, you're going to burn bridges. You're going to have 50% of the room more or less say, that's a crazy idea. Don't do it. And if you don't have that bonus structure, you're not going to do it because you're just going to piss off 50% of the room. How do you contribute that to sort of the, the system at that time? That is not a big part of why I came to Zynga at all. And in fact, I was unaware at the end of my first quarter getting pulled into a room exactly like that. And I was on a smaller game, so impact is smaller. But I was incredibly surprised that I would be getting... I'd worked at Zynga for you know three months and a week. <laughs> I had done not a, not a lot, let's be honest. Um, that was surprising to me. I can remember telling my wife the bonus I had and... She was so excited. And then I went, but wait, there's more. And it kept going. You know, I mean, there was other elements. And she was like, what? There's there's more to this yeah. whole 
Anyway. I think I think the bigger thing, maybe to, if I can sort of pivot that slightly, it's the, the incentives were incentives were interesting, especially short term, and because they were so strong, and the structure of how product worked was in a way that I found suboptimal, which is where I'm going to take this. It did create a lot of conflicts that created both on the teams, but also in the products themselves. And so, as an example. Back when you were at Zynga, the very normal structure, right, would be that there was rev PMs, retention PMs, and growth PMs. I do not have that on any of my teams, and I'm like vehemently against it because there is massive conflicts of interest on each of those different areas and how they are represented to the player. So as an example, as a rev PM, what's the best way for you to uh, help revenue tomorrow on poker? Cut inflows. What's the best way for retention PM to increase retention tomorrow, increase inflows? Like it doesn't work for a player experience. And so like the famous example from back then, it also means that everybody's feature is the top priority feature. So I think there was a example back in, you know, 2011, 2012, City Bills Out, a board member came and they had 17 different pop-ups hit, you know, before they could even get into the game because obviously every PM's feature was the top one. <laughs> so it just created a weird structure ultimately with what I was most concerned about, which is like the player experience and what are they actually going to have happen to them in the game and how are we going to make it fun? So we've changed structurally how we think about that. PMs obviously own initiatives, but they are not focused on DAU or revenue or retention. I, I, I think that's a very simplistic way to sort of structure what you're focused on. I, I think that's a great change because I can tell too many stories of me going up against Justin Wicket head on, who was the DAU lead and I was the rev lead and duking it out on what we wanted to do. And also you alluded to that short-term focus, right? The quarterly goal system, although it kept things pretty interesting and motivating for a PM because I did like that what they were basing their evaluation on was very relevant and they remembered, okay, this is what happened in the last three months. But on the flip side, yeah. certainly incentivized you to do these quick hits that were going to spike numbers at the end of the quarter or in the short mm -hmm. period. And you weren't as incentivized to go and say, okay, I'm going to do this project that's going to take me seven months or eight months. Yeah. And it's going to be a huge impact. I, I can understand why it happened. I, it why the idea came to structure it that way. But yeah, it had, it had some consequences as a result. And as you think about your progression through the system and now that you're an SVP, so what were some of the other things that you sort of identified and said, hey, this isn't something that I want to have on my teams? Like I sort of said at the start, I run the, the product and game design teams for, for a variety of games. I'm super focused on analytics as well, though, and we have amazing analytics partners at Zinc at this point. Alex Tremblay and his team are, are incredible. We have changed a lot on how we ultimately measure things, um, which I think is still like ground zero for how you make good decisions. Back to the point of analytical rigor. I mean, it's such a big part of, of mobile game development at this point, but like the success criteria of how we're measuring things today is so different than what we were doing in 2011, 2012, 2013, as it should be. Like it should be evolving. We sort of had a big, I'd say, call to arms probably four years ago on pushing us forward on that front with the idea like, look, people before us at Zynga really pioneered this stuff. We should not be using that same methodology that was developed on the fly in 2010, you know, now when we have a, a much more sophisticated process for a lot of other things. That's been a pretty big 
fundamental change, I would say, overall and sort of evaluation of whether things are good or not, which is a very hard question to answer most of the time. So that's been a big thing. I'm also, um, when it comes to product teams, a fairly big proponent of um, smaller is better. So not huge product teams. Ultimately, I think it's really great to have you know a team of five or six folks that are really great as opposed to these the, the old teams at Zynga, which were super common, is being very, very large. So that's been a big part. Last Maybe last thing that comes to mind is definitely empowering game design more. There are very creative people that have been in this industry for a very long time, their wisdom is you know, greatly appreciated. I think for some game designers, the transition to uh, free-to-play was tough because it does change how you design games. Um, but for those that have done it, they're amazing contributors on our teams. And so, you know, high level, you know, design is just such a critical part of our process, more so than it was, say, 2012, 2013, because they're really the partners of product and sort of figuring out what we're going to build. When I was there, towards the end, we had evolved. Nicole Opus had really uh, implemented more of a design focus on the Zynga Poker team. And we had... I can remember my some of my last features, like the leaderboard I built, where I was paired with a game designer. That in itself, I think, is a really interesting dynamic because game designers are just just. I I think there should be a gaming ver- uh, a, a gaming version of The Office because the personalities <laughs> that are in gaming are amazing, and they are all on these different vectors. QA has their own personality, obviously design, and then or art and then game design and PMs or the dynamic in a gaming office is hilarious and incredible. But that dynamic between those two, how does that play out? How do we balance that kind of control of what you get to do and what, who gets implemented? Is it 50, 50, or is it sort of like six fifty five? 45 in terms of the PM or. Well, take one step back. I totally agree with you. Like, that's one of the things that I just find incredible and why I'm so happy at, at Zynga today is like the multitude of different people that I get to work with every day that are amazing and very unique. You know, it's incredible to sit in a meeting. We don't get to sit in meetings now, but like back when the world was normal and we could be in an office, you know, sit next to an artist who doodles something on a napkin that I will never be able to do in, you know, with years and years of training and they did it in four minutes. Like I find that incredibly inspiring every time and it doesn't get old. And that's, you know, single example of just like vast array of, of skills that, that happen in a game studio. We're still structured in a way that the director product in the game is ultimately making the decisions of what is happening on the roadmap. How are we allocating our time and resources? But there's a director of design counterpart for them that is working hand in hand with what do we think is going to be good for our players. And ultimately, if we're doing it right, product is probably structuring what's the problem we need to solve. And design is trying to figure out what's a fun way to address that issue. Different from, say, console development, I would say our design teams are, in particular, systems-focused. Like, ultimately, design in mobile games is heavily systems design. How are you making systems coexist together that really reinforce progression or good behavior that's fun, as opposed to just user experience design, which is totally important, too, but it's it's sort of a separate distinction than what I'm talking about, which is heavily game systems design structures. There's plenty of designers that have worked in games for forever, and they're really good at tailoring how to make a moment special for, for a player. That's super important for us, no doubt. More important than that, though, for us is how do you design a system behind that that is perpetual 
and works for many months um, to make that fun moment fun and fun and fun and not fun for a week. That's the nut that you have to crack with mobile development because Zynga Poker Turn is 13 years old. You know, that's amazing. That's amazing. There are some parts of that that are, you know, core to poker being poker and it being a long lasting, you know, genre. But there are some systems behind that that I think, you know, probably that you were part of building that have really helped keep that longevity there. And it's it's really the secret sauce of, of the game systems that make that happen. And so that's what I mean by game design, I guess. We always love to hear where our guests think the future of gaming or mobile gaming in particular is headed. So, Andrew, where do you think the puck is going? So I, I listened to Anton's, uh, your podcast with Anton last week. He's a great guy, by the way. Thought a couple of the things that he brought up were really interesting, it, in particular around efficiency of entertainment. I think that's a huge part that's really happened with games and mobile games. And it is the sort of like the nut that you have to crack with any gaming product today is like, how can I make this an efficient form of entertainment? If it only scales linearly with time, it's uh, a little bit tougher on the business side for a game. We, we typically refer to that as intensity. Can you get intensity of engagement in a game? And I think that's a, a big part of what Anton in part was, was referring to, which is super cool. And I agree that's going to be a big part of where this stuff goes. I don't think that's specific to mobile games at all. I think that's the gaming ecosystem generally. The things that, you know, outside of my personal realm that I find super cool and like that there's a very large ocean out there are things like Zwift, which is a video game and in fact has some ex Zynga talent at it at this point, which is pretty cool. But it's a, you know, that is an MMO dressed up as a cycling app. And I think that there's a lot going to be a lot of things that sort of go that route that take these big overall gaming concepts, MMOs in, in particular, and turn them into apps or structures or systems that people are using and they don't even know they're playing a game. And I think that that's super cool because it's going to extrapolate out a lot of the sort of core game design principles into worlds where people have not really interacted with them in the same way that, you know, what Zynga pioneered in a lot of ways was bringing games to people that didn't think they were gamers. That was a huge innovation, probably the biggest innovation that Zynga did really um, in its first, in its early days. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of things along those lines that are going to happen as well. Yeah. We've talked about this some in our reports where, and we almost need to graph it out where it's the complexity that the player or the user can handle and the complexity of the system that you present to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. always changing. And we've seen that in, for example, casual games where in the beginning you had tutorials and this is how it works. And now you see RPG and core elements going in super casual games or and because those players have evolved in their knowledge of what they can comprehend in terms of game designs and systems. Right. One of the challenges of PMs is basically creating design that matches that intelligence of game design that the players have and that that's always changing and it's interesting you're sort of saying well that's that's increasing overall because at this point everyone's kind of a gamer everyone's mm -hmm. general playing games so everyone's ability to comprehend systems is getting better right it's increasing yeah and therefore that's going to open up more opportunities for more complex mechanics to get implemented in in non-gaming or even casual gaming systems totally. right and you do this yep. yeah yeah it's and i think that that's 
just incredibly cool. I mean, if any, and if you think about it more localized into you know just mobile games, yeah, the complexity of the meta systems in all of the the games today is massively more complicated, even in casual games, than it was you know four or five years ago. And I think that's only going to increase. Welcome to the end of the episode, and thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Andrew, for sharing his experiences and his expertise with us. If you have any burning questions about the episode, any ideas for a future guest, please shoot Brett an email at brett.novak at liquidandgrit.com. That is b-r-e-t-t dot n-o-w-a-k at liquidandgrit.com. We hope you were inspired by today's episode, and if you were, please consider subscribing to our show or sharing it in all the places that you love to share things. So until next time, here's Brett to close us out. Yeah, and with the increase in willingness to pay, anecdotally, I I interviewed at, I remember, Strava. They told me their revenue numbers, and I looked at their systems and was like, and they were really proud of those revenue numbers and they should have been but coming from games i was saying guys you realize that we're making like that every month in a game system with less dau and you've got these super valuable people biking who are spending ten thousand dollars on a bike and you're charging them Mm -hmm. 60 bucks a year for an annual subscription or something i didn't get the job so uh (laughs) i I think when i I said things like that it didn't go over well but Having come from games, I was thinking, geez, there's so many mechanics out there.